welcome to The V-Hive, a platform focused on women's intimate health. With weekly episodes from the field's top practitioners, we discuss all of the things you've always thought about but never wanted to talk about. On this podcast, we are making the highest quality information on the most beloved part of your body accessible, understandable, and implementable. I'm your host, Hannah Matluck, and I started this platform as a result of my own experience with chronic pelvic pain. Throughout the years I spent healing my body, I became overwhelmingly interested and passionate about these topics and have made it my mission to create awareness and education on the complexities of the female body. Today I am here with Dr. Justine Roper. She is a certified women's pelvic specialist and pelvic floor therapist. She has dedicated her life to offering innovative ways to heal her patients' bodies of pain and other dysfunction through alternative methods. From sexual dysfunction to pelvic pain, many of her patients are impacted by both physical ailments as well as mental health issues. She's also a speaker who dedicates her time to promoting education and enlightenment on mental health disorders and beginning a journey towards living a life of freedom after experiencing sexual trauma or abuse. She is the founder of In Her Physique Pelvic Floor Physical Therapy, the only clinic that offers pelvic floor physical therapy services to all genders and ages in the Florida Gulf Coast. She is also an adjunct professor at the University of West Florida. Thank you so much for being here today. I am honestly so excited to talk to you because we have a lot of important topics that we're going to get into that really need to be addressed and thank you so much for having me super excited i know yes you're right it's a lot of a lot of meaty things to discuss there are there are Mm -hmm. good things but important things that i mean as you know and you honestly i appreciate you pointing out to me i need to address more on this platform because they are so important and you know people do need to be aware of the problems um in in healthcare and women's sexual health that are current uh, have been going on for a while and like are still mm-hmm. going on and just education and awareness is obviously like one of the first and most important steps so thank you for being here absolutely thanks again so exciting so first let's just start with you giving us a little bit more of an insight into how you got started in this field Okay, so um, I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. for my doctoral program in physical therapy. And while I was there, we had maybe like one day of pelvic floor um, introduction. Uh, And believe it or not, at that time when I was in PT school, it wasn't even called specifically pelvic floor. It was actually called women's health Mm -hmm. as a general term. And um, so much so, like even this year, I believe in January, uh, that the Academy um, of Public Health was changed from the section on women's health or of women's health to the Academy of Public Health to be Mm -hmm. all inclusive. And so really when we we, um, learned it in school, it was quick, it was a day, it was a lab and that was it, but I was super intrigued. So out of 31 students, I requested to get a specialty clinical rotation in it. And so I did that specialty clinical rotation in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And the first day I showed up, um, mind you, I was still still a student, thought I was just going to treat women for breast cancer, maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. and I show up and my CI is like, just just glove up and follow my lead. And I'm like, okay, just, you know, green and just super excited. And I actually walk in the room and it's a male 
on the table who had uh, was in military boot camp. And Fort Walton Beach is a big military town. And he parachuted out of a plane and landed on his tailbone and broke it and had years of referral pelvic pain. And that was my first patient ever in this world. And I was quickly (laughs) uh, awakened to the severity and the depth of what pelvic pain looks like and how it impacts people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so after that, I just fell in love with it. And at the time, at that clinical site, I didn't treat children. But fast forward, I actually went back to D.C. to start my career after graduation and couldn't find a job in pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And so I went into long-term acute care with really sick people, and then I got really depressed from being in that setting all the time. Of, of you know, just a setting can be weighty, yeah, and you get numb as well treating really sick people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went into peds. So after that, I I didn't know that it was really setting me up to open my clinic here um, independently. Um, but it actually was really, really, really um, amazing to have created that journey or or gone on that journey and after getting experience in all the different settings I always remembered that first patient and it it, it, I just used every single interaction to create something different Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so I opened in her physique pelvic floor physical therapy in 2008 18 actually 17 18 and I actually included children so I treat men women and children for all things pelvic wow uh I love to say that because it's gastrointestinal yeah. uh-huh. and you know all these things and you've had several guests yeah. on the 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 show that uh, are pelvic specialists so um your viewers probably are not or your listeners are probably not foreign to to mm-hmm. it but yeah I mean that's my background that's how I started and ever since then, I've been treating everything you can think of um, and some things you wouldn't think of until it happens to you. So, yeah, yeah that's a little bit about me, if that helps at all. To, yes, it uh, does. Make the connection. Thank you. No, it's so interesting to hear. And I always love just learning about how people got into this space because it's not the most typical field, um, especially of of physical therapy and of healthcare in general. So I find it really interesting to hear. But something I really also want to get your perspective on today is on treating women's health issues such as pelvic pain, GI issues, trauma-informed care from the lens of a black female provider and kind of like the disparities that you see in this realm of healthcare and and how you go about addressing it. Absolutely. So part of it I I will give statistics today and like be able to inform in that way so people understand that there's sound evidence that these disparities exist but I think the I'll start with some transparency on my part Mm. so I opened my practice three years ago and in those three years I have only treated five black women Mm -hmm. in my clinic and everyone else has been um of another uh, race. Yeah. And so much so that I had a patient recently, she's a little bit older. She came to me and she was like, you know, I I don't take any offense to this, but every single patient that I come into contact with while I'm here has not looked like you. Mm -hmm. And she was stating the obvious to me, but it was intriguing that she picked up on that. And I, I've been battling with that since I've been open. Um, But the, what's factual and and what I've experienced just from being an uh, African-American black uh, individual is that there are constructs that have been um, in place 
culturally and politically since, I mean, of course, slavery, right? Yeah. And I always use the example of the midwives um, just to make it relative to women's health. Um, slavery owners valued uh, the midwives so much on the plantation because plantations, because healthy babies um, equaled healthy slaves, mm-hmm. right? And That's so, so the caregivers were always um, other people that looked like black in that particular culture, right? Mm-hmm. And after um, medicine started to be again become uh, medicinalized, medicalized procedures were used. The practitioners that offered care um, were white males. Mm-hmm. And the midwives actually were now considered unsanitary, um, not ethical, right? And it started to become more and more where uh, facilities were the, the source where you would go to to receive OBGYN care. Mm-hmm. The, the issue with that also is that hospitals did not allow uh, blacks to be served there. Yeah. So in some communities, midwives were still the holy grail, right? Right. And so if you use that as like an example to look at disparities um, in its origin, it's it's totally um, education-based, income-based politics, all of that. But I think it's also just like in general access, right? And so when you break that down as well, it's like 11% of African-Americans in 2018 had health insurance, right? Wow. So we're past the fact that blacks can't be seen at a certain hospital. Now it's a little, di- looks a little bit different where um, African-Americans may not be able to go to the best hospitals or receive the best care. And the reason why I say that is because when you have me- maybe something like Medicaid or you're uninsured, the volume is high. So practitioners can't spend as much time or pay as much attention to you as maybe somewhere else. Now that's a whole nother conversation in regards to westernized medicine and 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 the standard of care in general. Mm-hmm. But I'm just speaking to maybe what's happening um on the level of disparities at its origin, right? right? Or at its core. Right. And so when you have one layer of access, you have culture as well. So it culturally to be unwell means something's wrong with you and you're defective. Something's yeah. wrong. So I'll give an example. So 63 there was a study done where 63% of African Americans said that if you sought out mental health services that that was a form of weakness. Mm. And so whether it be mental health or whether it be just getting um, blood pressure screenings and cancer screenings and just going to your yearly checkup there's something that has been engraved inside of African-Americans within the cultural aspect or, or diaspora that seeking care means that something's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Where that stems from could be so many different things and so many different professionals can speak on it. But from my perspective is that resilience has been forced in the sense of from when slavery began until Now, resilience has been forced, and that looks different for every woman. You know, we are all, whether you're a mom or not, or whether you're a student or not, you know, resilience is something that our culture is kind of forcing on us um, in a sense. But I think in the black community, um, that's where it stemmed from. We had to, had Mm -hmm. to be 
um, and, and be creative and, and to force yourself to get up every day um, to do this or to do that or to care for your family. And so while there are things like like the lack of access, the lack of health insurance, um, the lack of, of providers that are informed on um, issues that will impact the black community more than other uh, races, all of those things kind of are jumbled into this big pot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so my my thing is, OK, specifically, um, how do we attack that? But I, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background and hopefully that was helpful. It was definitely very helpful. And what I like what I find interesting, but also want to hear more about is I think that, you know, in terms of pelvic pain, it's not mm-hmm. something that anyone I mean, I don't I guess I can't say anyone, but that the majority of people don't feel or the majority of women don't feel comfortable addressing and talking about and really like seeking help for but then as you say when it comes to people of color like how much harder navigating having pelvic pain is I'm curious Mm -hmm. how like I just you know so much more than I do about this so I want to know like do you have any you know stories or examples or insight and that people can just kind of hear to really get an understanding of like how much harder it is to navigate having pelvic pain for people of color. Yeah, Yeah, I'll give you an example. So um, I had a patient that was 30 years old, young, beautiful, young lady, African-American, a black female. Mm -hmm. She had uh, three children and she came to me after having gone to several practitioners, one of which was a urogynecologist um, and surgeon. She had complained of abdominal pain, uh, uh, excessive bleeding for years, since she was at 14 years old. And uh, she had been diagnosed with um, endometriosis at the age of 26, I believe, if I can recall. Mm-hmm. And just to, to note, uh, about 50%, um, African Americans are 50% less likely to actually even be diagnosed with endo. That's so exactly what I want to talk ahead. about with you next. No, because I, I read that statistic and it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's nuts. And so what, what what's to speak to that is that, you know, if you were complaining of these things at 14 and going all the way up to getting to me at 30 years old, not only had she complained, not only had she had excisions, she also had um, four she clamps left inside of her body. She had what? So foreshe clamps are like clamps that clamp off certain areas of the body in order to better see or perform Uh a procedure. Um, They're a foreign body, (laughs) and they were actually left inside of her abdominal cavity after one of her excisions. Oh, my God. And it was interesting because when she went to the urogynecologist that referred her to me, which I'll get into that in a second, um, they actually were not interested in going back in and removing them. Um, and so when not kidding, so it, not only this, so now this is Eurogyno, right? Mm-hmm. But she also has a primary care physician who had been giving her steroidal abdominal injections for pain all at the same time. She had distension of her abdomen that was relieved by nothing. Nothing relieved it. Mm-hmm. Um, chronic abdominal distension, pain with eating. So every time, time she would eat, she would swell even more. And it would be painful. So she was malnourished. 
Um, she had abdominal scarring that's outrageous, of course, because she had had three excisions by the time she got to me. And while she was under my care, and I don't know if other practitioners on the platform have spoken to um, the difficulties of communicating with physicians in order to get what we need to do our job, but it is hard, right? Like pelvic floor therapists, we, we're a little bit, not necessarily more skilled than another physical therapist or a specialty of physical therapy. We just need more medicinal care at times mm. in order to better do our job. And what that looks like is just, you know, maybe a patient would need maybe um, a prescription for topical lidocaine or something and able to uh, be to be able to tolerate maybe intravaginal soft tissue work, for example, um, something like that. Well, I'm in communication with these practitioners and they shot down every single recommendation I had, whether it be actually go back and get a pelvic MRI, which pelvic MRIs are expensive. And I've had this particular a practitioner said that we just don't do them and it's it's <laughs> it's so um disheartening to look at this beautiful woman struggle so much now that same practitioner has referred other patients to me mm-hmm. of different races and i've sent in communication notes and 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 recommendations of which they've easily filled without me picking up the phone it was something wow. about this particular patient that was was um, intimidating, or maybe so much so that they said, "Hey, we can't do anything else. Go to pelvic PT to begin with." That's mm-hmm. how I got her, mm-hmm. and it was it's it's the perception of pain is is hard um, to overcome. Yeah, I think uh, let's say okay. So the Washington Post did a study. And you may have heard of this study before where they interviewed medical school students and first year practitioners, uh, medical practitioners on bias. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions was, do you think that black uh, people have less sensitive nerve endings than white people? 50% of that study said yes. Oh, my God. The another question in that study was if they felt like black people had thicker, actual thicker skin than white people. And they also said yes. A large majority also said yes. So what I am seeing in the flesh, in my hands, by touching this patient, mm-hmm. is the the perception of pain is dampened um, towards African-American black people. Yeah. She's in excruciating pain yeah, daily, and it's visible, and they've done nothing but insert injections in her abdomen and give her ibuprofen. That was it. Now, the other patients that looked different than her, I easily wrote in scripts and and recommendations that were actually filled. Now, they didn't do the exact Mm -hmm. um, recommendation, but they did it to whatever they thought was best, and it hurt. It actually like hurt my stomach and every single time I think about it, it hurts my stomach. But that's an example of, of the, of real life. And, and at some point it was also unethical for me to treat her because I had no help. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that you've talked about this, um, on your platform with other practitioners that may have been uh, spoken about like trauma informed care Mm -hmm. and, um, different things like that. Like it's a collaborative effort. Every single person should have a care team. 
there's not one practitioner that should hold all of your health um, in their hand. No. Right. Yeah, you need help. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's an example, but I, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, it it helps. It it does help a lot. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, what I like want to know is obviously this is a huge issue and and is going to take a lot of a lot of continuous education and like proactive work. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of patients who listen to this podcast, in addition to a lot of practitioners, such as pelvic floor PTs, I want you to kind of give advice, like, you know, tangible things that people listening can do. And we can start with patient listeners and then we can go to, or whether it's a patient or an educator or an advocate, whatever it is. And then we can go to the, those practitioner listeners. But I want to, because I assume that your insight into actionable things that, that we can do will be different or maybe partly the same, but let's mm-hmm. just start with the, the patients and the educators and the advocates, one of them being myself. Um, okay. What we can do to try and really change this narrative. Well, look, luckily, I truly believe in my heart and, and from my point of view that the change is happening. Yeah. The reason I say that is because more women in general, no matter what race, are speaking up about um, female issues and conditions yeah. from Beyonce to um, Serena Williams mm-hmm. to Drew Barrymore to all um, uh, Chrissy Teigen, uh, all of those people are speaking yeah. out more, making it more accept- acceptable to peel the bandaid off to even look at it, right? Mm-hmm. To even look at it. So I think that that's helpful to everyone. That's such a good blacks, point, right? Yeah. So that's that's really awesome. Now, in regards to patients, I think what needs to be given is permission. And what I mean by that is permission to say and feel that something is wrong. Like, that's okay. Our bodies have alarm systems in them that are there for a reason to let us know that there's something that may not be right about the functionality of the body. So like pain suppression is a big deal. Um, 27% of African-Americans report having chronic pain. That's a large sum of people, chronic pain. And that includes everything from arthritis to fibroid issues. Right. And so, and the numbers get higher and higher with age. So I, one for me is permission and, and, and just coming to terms with that. It's okay to, one, verbalize it to, to anyone, really. But typically, it should be to a pr- practitioner that you trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another thing under trauma-informed care that I guess we we're going to delve into a little bit more, hopefully, yeah. um, before we hang up. Yeah. But um, one is the permission, right? Pa- another thing is that um, there have been there has been so much... Um, oh, what is the word? It's, it's so much... Um, turning away so patients will go and report things that may seem small mm-hmm. to practitioners that may not need to be addressed but um they do and i'll give you an example um fibroids there's a high percentage of women who have uterine fibroids that have vitamin d deficiencies 
and deficiency is not necessarily excessive in nature, right? It doesn't have to be excessive in order for it to be addressed and um, actually be contributing to the fibroid issue. So what that looks like is, is, is partially taking in your, into your own hands your education and what you demand from the practitioners you may go to see. And that is intimidating in itself. Why? Because we've been trained to trust our practitioners. Mm -hmm. We've been trained mentally to think that the practitioners know everything and they will fix me. But that's not the case. And the reason why I can never truly always be 100% the case is that because practitioners are also human. And humans fail sometimes. And we have to remember that. And sometimes it's never, it's not always intentional. And neglect doesn't always have to be intentional, right? Um, and, and I will also say to, to practitioners that I understand too, the, the westernized model, medical model doesn't allow a lot of room for specificity either. On average, I, I believe it's between 60 and 80 patients that a patient in a big box company is seeing per day. So that means that they have to walk in and out, right? And we're not talking about alternative practitioners, but we're, we're talking about the typical medical doctor that's in a, in a building or a hospital outpatient clinic, right? Mm-hmm. And so that the education part, we have to be okay with properly educating ourselves and finding resources, and I will give some at the end, that will be able to um, point us in the right direction for more, more and more education as we go along. Mm-hmm. And then using that muscle, right? Using the, the permission muscle. I call it the permission muscle. Using that muscle in practice. And that could be like, when you go to one checkup per year, exercise asking more about what the doctor has said to you. Um, I posted a, a video today um, from a African-American OBGYN that gave us maybe like five or six top questions to ask at our annual visit. That's good. Yeah. And that, that was just that was just the basics of like, hey, you know, are there any trends in my weight loss that I could be should be concerned about? Just just for an example. Right. That forces the practitioner to look inside your chart and look back at the other times they've seen you. Yeah. Yeah. Basic things like that. So those those are my first two. One giving yourself permission to feel and understand and also practicing your permission muscle by putting your care in your hands. And I know it's a huge responsibility, but it's empowering. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Cause now it takes, it empowers you to be independent and takes the control out of someone else's hands. So those are my two. So I'm not long winded. Is no, that okay? Or, or is more no, to give you more? no, no, no. It's perfect. And okay. It's perfect. Let's go into practitioners and for practitioners that what I, you know, something I wanted your opinion on is a lot of pelvic pain practitioners are white and um, for them, how can they, I mean, general advice that you have, I want to hear, but also how can they, I guess, be more proactive about educating their audience and their patients and their colleagues on the health disparities as it relates to women of color absolutely so unfortunately but fortunately Mm -hmm. to care for the black community better that requires a cognitive choice yeah and choice it's hard sometimes i truly believe that it may be hard to make and the reason why i say that is because of how our systems are set up again 
I truly created my clinic to see one patient per hour um, and, and try to really cater to um, the patient's um, comfortability and trust and all of those things. And, and that takes time. Yeah. Of which a lot of practitioners don't are cannot they don't have it, they don't have it, and so but but what the issue is that they it's more than just saying hey like I, I'm gonna do the, give this, the patients these screening forms and on these screening forms they're gonna check if they've had abuse before or they you know maybe filling out a competency um, um, training or doing something like that it, it's more than that it's an active choice because some of these constructs have to be broken down and that includes the time that a practitioner can spend with our patient and or the required trainings that actually have to include carryover. Um, and so that choice comes with the responsibility and some people have to reach inside of their, their spirits and hearts and wherewithal in order to face the decision on whether they're capable and are going to choose to make it. So that's number one. And, and in that umbrella, they, you have to also make the choice and understanding that the disparities exist because I, I truly believe some people don't think they do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with right? that. Yeah, I agree. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's that choice comes with responsibility mm-hmm. some people maybe since serena williams documentary about her birthing experience some like practitioners may now be forced into the category to screen their african-american patients more but some won't still right there are some yeah. seeds that have been planted that have um produced fruit and in, in practitioners, but sometimes, you know, it just may not. So again, that's, that's the choice. And I pray that more practitioners will do the research in their own personal time mm-hmm. in order to make it more real for them. Because that's really what it is, is that people are so disconnected from the reality that um, African Americans and black people face mm-hmm. that it, they're, it, it, it's not real enough for them to make a, cho- a choice to change. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's, that's the first one. And then the second one is the, the um, screening forms. I believe the first step is to screen <laughs> for comfortability. And sometimes that also means that you make your own screening form. At my clinic, um, with it, we don't make it separate. Um, it actually is included in our pain um, scales and in our intake forms in order to not isolate and, and make someone uncomfortable by just filling out maybe a... Um, practitioner preference form or things that they, especially with trauma-informed care. And I want to be very clear about trauma too, really quickly. Trauma doesn't have to look like sexual abuse. Trauma mm-hmm. could look like a bad experience with a, another practitioner. And I get it a lot in my yeah. clinic yeah. that maybe um, the practitioner moved too fast and now they, it set them back 10 years, right? Those types of things. And and just realizing that those types of things happen um, exponentially more to black people than they do to other races, right? Mm-hmm. And so screening patients and in, in, in creating an environment that the patient doesn't feel like a number. And again, that just goes back with t- two times spent. I think the last thing is the way that you speak. Communication is big, and I think that we should all be able to um, do some form of training and competency and communication in general. Um, part of it is like, we all have our personalities, right? Like I'm pretty bubbly, right? But, and uh, someone else may not be as bubbly. That's different. What I mean is not speaking in a condescending tone or rushing someone to get to the point. Um, those types of things should be given to all patients. 
right? Not just African-Americans, but the issue is that African-Americans are not heard by their practitioners. They're often rushed. They're often pushed to the side. So I think when it comes to that, listening is the biggest part. And actually asking questions that would shock them to have been asked. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, you care? Wow, I never thought about that. Oh, wow, thank you for even opening up something I need to think more about. Yeah. Right. And those are like basic things I think that practitioners should do. But again, it's the choice, taking the time. And you, when you make that choice, it's, it's a responsibility. So educating yourself in your own personal time, using really good sound resources and using that muscle throughout your, your day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Through good, solid communication. I also just want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but this circles back to the first point you made in regards to like how practitioners can be more proactive, but, and as you know, it's a choice that we make, that they make, but I also think that education, and you said this, but that self-education is really important. And, you know, we obviously are all so caught up in our day-to-day lives and our families and jobs and whatever it is that we forget that like, okay, I can spend, you know, if you spend five minutes Googling like health disparities right. in uh, amongst people of color or endometriosis diagnosis right. disparities mm-hmm. amongst people of color, like I've done it and it takes 10 minutes and you'll find, as you mentioned, some of them, all of these statistics, facts, articles, like there's a, a lot of information out there that like, it's not necessarily that you need to spend, take a week off from work and do a, right. a, a continuing education course, which couldn't hurt, but you can also spend 10 minutes Googling some of these things and learn a lot of information that will actually, I think, also really help you to open your eyes and outlook in, you know, in, in what some of these issues really are. And I think, as you said, once you then know and have the education you'll be more compelled to make a change in your life absolutely and it's it should really be a revolving door though because the more that the practitioners do that they need to force their patients to advocate for themselves Mm -hmm. you can't force is a strong word but what i mean is they should give their patients resources to read tell them things that can empower them and may spark a light inside of them to read more about yeah. So, and I know that that, you know, cause I do it all the time. I give handouts to patients and you know, you're just like, they're probably going to throw it away. But I think sometimes they don't and they actually will read it. Yeah. Right. Totally. And so it's, sh- so all of us are educated. All of us are included in this education loop. Right. And I think that's, what's going to make things better continuously and to perpetuate the growth. Yeah. I completely agree. Circling back to trauma-informed care for a minute or two, I know that this is something you have a lot of experience working in. I want to get your insight into all of this and how trauma-informed care looks different between all types of patients and people. Yeah. So I know, again, I I believe, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners... um, definitely kind of have an idea of what trauma-informed mm-hmm. care is. But I want to be clear about trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care is not really used to treat trauma. It's really used to not re-traumatize and to provide care that's appropriate appropriate to someone who's experienced it. Mm-hmm. And trauma itself looks different. And I say this to um, 
my patients every single time I get a new evaluation. Trauma can look like a, um, a birth that really was detrimental to the body. Um, and black women are three to four times more likely to suffer from a severe disability resulting from birth, for example. And I get a lot of postpartum women. So that's why I brought that one up Mm -hmm. is that, that your birthing experience is trauma and infection is trauma. Anything that throws your body off of homeostasis for an extended period of time typically is trauma. Yeah. Right. And so the goal of trauma informed care is to not re-traumatize. But what does that look like? Even, even some sounds and smells and, and, and things like that can re-traumatize, right? And again, a lot of, of that does not necessarily, um, we can't always meet every single need in that way. But I think what we like to do is uh, provide a little box on their paperwork or have them tell us some of the things that make them feel comfortable when they come in, when patients come in, what, what would make you, what would make this experience comfortable for you? Granted, as comfortable as possible, pelvic floor PT um, is not always the best, com- most comfortable No, that's place an to interesting be. point though. That's interesting. <laughs> so, I've never heard that before. Like really asking what yeah, they would want. What yeah, does that uh-huh. look like? Cause I have, we have some very forward <laughs> patients that tell us even like we used to use, um, Bath and Body Works plugins in the wall, mm-hmm. and um, one patient actually told us she couldn't do, she couldn't come if it was there. So we removed it, no problem. <laughs> right? <laughs> like seriously, we have some patients that believe in, um, like the the uh, flicker from the lights, uh, the iridescent lights, typically you know, like the big uh, office lights. Yeah, that actually really stimulates them, and they they can't, they don't even sleep with light or have lights in their home. They use like infrared. We turn the lights out for them. Mm-hmm. So different things to accommodate people who have been traumatized by certain things. That's level layer one. And we do that for all of all of our patients, whether um, persons of color or not. Um, I think the overarching categories of trauma-informed care, of course, there are five of them, the safety, the choice, collaboration, uh, trust, and empowerment, right? So how do you address those while interacting with someone who's experienced trauma of any kind. And that just takes humanity. It, it really does take selflessness. Um, we are to do no harm, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that like we we always are, are avoiding doing a procedure that could kill someone. It's much more than that, right? It's yeah. like asking the patient, is this okay with every single touch you mm-hmm, do? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. Yeah. You know, um, what makes you, um, what are some triggers for you? One patient recently, actually, that I had, she told me, um, if you just give me some time, I will be okay. Just give me some time. And again, that just goes back. Trauma-informed care, I I really, I mean, for real, every trauma-informed care seminar, it needs to include that time issue. Yeah. Because we rush, we, we're forced to. And so when you rush, rush, a lot of times, one, you can miss things, but two, you can re-traumatize. And so with the African-American population, we're so used to it. In the, in, I mean, even me, some, I found myself going to the doctor maybe like three weeks ago, and I just had my bullet points in my phone so I can go ahead and boom, 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 boom. Because mm-hmm. I already know, I already know that what this is going to be like, unfortunately. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, that's, you know, with that, what it looks like is asking, asking first and, and 
sometimes they may be excessive accommodations that we can't meet, but what are the basics? And then also saying if they, cause I've also had patients that when they fill out their paperwork, they actually circle no or say they have not been traumatized in any way, sexually or any other kind of way. And then by visit six, they've come out and said, I was really embarrassed. Mm. I did not want to let you know, but is it okay if we don't do rectal work? Right. And I'm like, you know what I mean? And so it's a continuous thing, right? And then every single time you do something new or do something at all, getting informed or giving in, receiving a consent, informed consent. Um. So hopefully that makes sense. I, I don't does. know if I answered. No, you did. Believe it or not, I I don't think I've really had anyone explain trauma-informed care like that. So that was really helpful to awesome. get your, your opinion and, and perspective on. So thank you so oh, much you. for that. I think that everyone listening will also, I, I presume, find that to be really interesting. Um, yeah. What are some resources you have to recommend for everyone before we go? So I'm not going to give you like a whole list. I'll give you maybe like four. That's great. So <laughs> four is good. <laughs> four. And then if you need to type it in a box or something, then I can give you more. But um, Health and Hurt You, have you heard of Health and Hurt You? No. Okay. So Health and Hurt You is a database um, and Instagram page and website and blog spot that um, offers practitioners that are persons of color. And not only but also list other practitioners that may not be a a person of color, but are um, sensitive, trauma-informed practitioners, people that actually have had experience with like um, African-American, high African-American black population having treated them. Um, It's an app as well. So Health in Her Hue, it's amazing. Their Instagram is is nuts with so many resources for everyone to be educated, not only African-Americans, but African-Americans can find someone that looks like them, um, whether it be a psychologist or a OBGYN. So that one's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Black Women's Imperative is great. It talks about policies and advocacy. Um, and then a little bit more about the trauma. The CDC actually does have a trauma approach page that you can go to that talks uh, talks about trauma-informed care and how you as a patient can know what to expect and what you should get um, for someone who is trauma-informed, and all of us should be um, as practitioners. So that's one. And then the last one is just going to be the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, They have a provider toolkit um, that's for postpartum care, um, as well as for treating um, African-Americans and persons of color on there as well. Mm -hmm. So those are my like maybe top four that I could narrow down um, that I think are great for everyone to go on and use. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And lastly, where can everyone contact you if they want to reach out, get in touch? Yes. And so um, you can, anyone can contact me um, at www.inherphysique.com. Um, on IG, on Instagram, it's at In Her Physique as well. And I talk to people around the world for free with consults. So if anyone ever wanted to talk, maybe get some information on how they can better um, access good care or different things of that nature. We do free consults all the time. I think the furthest is like Israel. Wow. So feel free to go to the contact form or book. Literally, you can go to my website and book one awesome. um, online on inherphysique.com. So I am available. That's great. And I will link all of the resources and your contact information in the show notes so that everyone can access 
you and your resources easily. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And sharing everything. So grateful. Thank you so much. So, 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 so much. And yes. this was so fun. I really appreciate it. And You're we welcome. can try and do another one soon because I feel yeah. like there's a lot more that we can talk about that we didn't even get to today. So definitely. And let me know. And then we'll stay in touch and follow me on Instagram. I follow you. And Perfect. We can talk at any time. We have Perfect. each other's numbers and everything now. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.